Well, once again, we are uh, recording the wheelhouse uh, via Skype. As uh, Jerry, we could not be uh, any further apart, and I, that that pains me to say that. But I am in I am in Midtown New York City, and you're way back in uh, one of the glorious conference rooms of Safeco Field. How are you, man? Excellent, excellent. I I, I think I could dream of scenarios in which we would be further apart, but we certainly would not be in the continental United States. <laughs> right, right, you are. Uh, well, hey, folks, we're sorry that this is a. Uh, Coming at you a little bit later in the week, normally, as you can tell, through our first seven episodes, we've tried to push these out uh, kind of midweek for you. But because of uh, various travel schedules, uh, both for Jerry and myself, uh, we have had to kind of delay recordings. And uh, Jerry, I know you've been in Arizona. We're going to touch on that a little bit. And among other places, I've been on the the Mariners caravan to eastern Washington, which is still going strong. Tuesday, the guys are going to be in Lacey, Washington. Wednesday, a fine play ball event in Vancouver, Washington. Friday, they'll be in Longview. You can get all the details on all the uh, additional stops on the Mariners Glories Caravan at mariners.com slash caravan. Uh, quick housekeeping, some news and notes on the podcast. Uh, we've heard we've heard from the Android users. We hear you loud and clear. And uh, Colin, uh, our fearless leader, has done a fine job of getting you set up with the TuneIn app. So give that a shot to subscribe. Of course, you can always subscribe on iTunes as well. Uh, but we are uh, excited, Jerry, to talk about a couple of things. First, I... I feel like I, I need to talk to you about uh, my few days on the caravan and getting to spend some time with a couple of your players, uh, namely Taylor Motter. And I'm I don't know, di- Jerry. I'm dying to hear. Right? Yeah. What? Please fill me in. Fill me in. I mean, I'm, I'm going to start by saying uh, 72 hours with Taylor Motter, uh, that would be you. enough for, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, remember Road Rules? I mean, this is like, he would be perfect on Road Rules. I mean, he really would <laughs> Um, so we're driving over the pass, right? And it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. The snow, the mountains, the trees. And, uh, I mean, as you know, uh, Taylor is a Florida boy and I, I think I believe him. Do you believe him when he says that that was the first time he's seen snow? I do believe him because in Arizona spring training kickoff 2017 day one of spring training, Taylor Motter was seen with a mock turtle covered by a hoodie with the hood up top <laughs> and wearing his heavy jacket for the first morning in the spring in Arizona. So I am buying it, yes. Well, when we were driving over the pass, and again, scenic picture, I mean, straight out of a postcard, right? He said aloud to the whole bus, how did the snow get on the trees? Which at that point, it was awkward for one of us to fill him in that the snow doesn't come from the ground up. It comes from the sky <laughs> down. So uh, we had a little bit of a lesson there. There was another quote um, uh, asking whether a moth was a mammal. Uh, there was some type of puzzle thing that Taylor was playing on one of our drives. Um, but you know what? Uh, he brings the energy, as you know. And uh, he was requested upon multiple times for a, a hair flip in front of a, a town forum. So Taylor was a great guy to have in the caravan. Yeah, I think one of my favorite episodes last spring when we were first getting acclimated to the Taylor Motter experience was <laughs> <laughs> in spring training when Scott and the guys, so our, from you know, Robbie and Nellie, Seeger, the entire team, had cooked up this gag where Taylor Motter was, was – being asked to cut his hair for charity. And let's just say he was vehemently opposed to the exercise <laughs> to the point where he was he was hiding, he was wearing hats, he was pulling hoodies over his head on a routine basis. 
And as you may or may not know, Aaron, we have a barber's chair at the facility down in spring training, which was teed up and ready to go for Taylor Motter. And up up until the day that the barber came in to do the, the haircut, donating his locks to charity, which people had effectively determined that they would pay for, uh, Taylor had had raised or purportedly raised $50,000 for children's charities only to walk to the chair with a beet red face and let's just say being escorted uh, roughly by a handful of teammates (laughs) before he got there only to find out that in fact it was all a gag. We were not asking him to cut his hair and he was very relieved to realize that the, the golden locks would live to see another day. That's fantastic. Does the uh, does the organization, Jerry, do the Mariners have a rule on how long a player's hair can be? I mean, it's a serious question because obviously a lot of organizations do have some type of guideline. No, you know, in in the '60s, '70s, '80s, the the Yankees and the Reds became kind of the last or the remnant of of the teams that had the, the real strict dress codes, I think, it, or or presentation codes. One of the things that we really stressed in the spring of 2016 was come as you are, be who you are. And, and uh, you know, we encouraged personality, be a little bit different. That's okay with us. And and coming into spring training last year with the likes of Taylor Motter and Ben Gamble, uh, if you recall Dylan Overton, we, we, had, sure. we had quite a few guys that were roughly stepping on their own hair. And and, uh, <laughs> and Scott Service, who, who you may or may not have known, doesn't have a, a, a lock of hair drifting below the collar line, said, he said, hey, I know I, know I told him to be who they are, but man, it's going to take some adjustment for me. <laughs> and he did. He did. Yeah, I remember Scott had a kind of prophetic line. We were at a um, a sponsors dinner in Peoria, and I'm almost positive you were there, Jerry. Uh, you must have been. When it, a, a fan asked him a, kind of along those lines about dealing with different personalities, and he kind of likened it to parenting, that you either roll with them or they're going to roll without you was kind of his loose quote. And uh, I think a lot of people in the crowd kind of took note of that. So it's, it's that was uh, – Kind of a neat thing that I think he learned maybe before he became a manager. I think truly he learned it as a parent, but it's neat that those things kind of carry over to the baseball field sometimes. Oh, they really do. And, and I think that's so true. And we talk about it in terms of or, or reference it as today's player. You know, today's player is just like today's just young people in the in the world today. And and we were no different a, a generation ago and the generation before us. And and, uh, you know, you, you learn to adapt to what is is current. And I think Scott's had fun with it. He's learned a lot. And, you know, it helped that we we all have, you know, kids in that general time zone or range and and we were able to to learn lessons through parenting well uh well i'll tell you what jerry i was just uh, before i got to new york i was in tempe for about 36 hours or so and i know you're still bronze from maui okay like let's not forget <laughs> about that uh but as a guy that i i really don't get dragged down by seattle weather even when it rains for like 10 days in a row i really i handle it much better than my wife does uh, but even for a guy who has a pretty upbeat attitude about gray skies, get into the desert for uh, a brief period of time was amazing. <laughs> I know uh, it was much more refreshing than I ever could have thought. But I know you were down there uh, near the beginning of the week in Peoria. Uh, first of all, it must have gotten your blood rushing a little bit just to kind of get to the complex and uh, be around baseball guys and see the fields. And, and that must have been that must have felt good, uh, even regardless of the sun. Oh, it really did. It, it was also really encouraging to walk past the the, the 
physical therapy center, you know, the, the training room and see just one guy. <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> you know, that was a refreshing thing. But yeah, I was down in Peoria. We, we put together a series of meetings that were being run by Andy McKay, our farm director, and by Lorena Martin, who's now overseeing our high performance department. And we brought together all our PD, all our high performance group, and a variety of front office personnel for what we called a continued education program. So, you know, three plus days down there with all our coaches, managers, trainers, strength coaches, analysts, etc. And we went through effectively three days of discussing best practices, the ways that we're getting better, identifying the progress that we've made, and then identifying our weaknesses and where we can get better. Uh, I thought it was tremendous. It was a great way to, to bring Lorena and a lot of her people up to speed on what we were doing organizationally. And, and frankly, it was a better way to spend our time than sitting home watching bowl games. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I know we've talked about Lorena on the podcast before uh, when her hire was made official, but I I was really interested to talk to some of the guys about Lorena who have already interacted with her. And on the caravan, Marco Gonzalez was with us. And of course, Marco lives in Seattle, so he's been at Safeco Field uh, just like a nine to five employee all off season. And I said, hey, you know, have you have you had a chance to talk with Lorena? And his eyes just opened up. It's like, man, this lady is for real. He, uh, he was trying to cite off all the degrees that she has and uh, <laughs> was very unsuccessful in naming all of them. And he said that, you ready for this, that she asked him for his wife's phone number to call his wife to find out what was in their refrigerator at home. I mean, did you know that that was going to be part of her job? Checking on Marco's fridge? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems like a doable thing. But, no, Lorena has really, from the particularly with our Major League staff, Scott, our staff, and, and our players, has really connected very quickly. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the baseball offseason runs quickly when you have a lot to do, and she has had a lot to do. So, you know, right now she's, she's acclimating and, and getting caught up to speed on player development but from our 40-man roster and and our manager and staff and and the major league perspective I couldn't be more comfortable with the position we're in well it was neat to get his insight a little bit on Lorena I know that's somebody that we're all eager to uh, get to know a little bit better uh, once we get down to Peoria but I, I was curious just to touch a little bit on player development and the Mariners and I, I can only imagine Jerry that every organization has their own way of looking at player development besides just the very obvious points of it. Uh, how has how has that kind of evolved or changed for you and Scott and Andy uh, during your time together with the Mariners? I don't know. I don't know that it's really changed. We came in with a series of ideas, some things we really wanted to focus on, and and and, and we've generally done most of those things. And when I say those things, we're setting up programs. Programs for how we go about executing in a bat, how we go about fundamental team defense, how we go about uh, something as simple as a bullpen in preparation for a game start. We're trying to set up routines and allow our players stability in their careers. We've developed creative programs. Uh, I think we are at the forefront in Major League Baseball in how we drive mental skills and through our organization and the importance of being prepared, both emotionally and intellectually. 
I think we we drive information through our system as aggressively or, or perhaps as well as any team in baseball. And we spend as much time focusing on developing leaders on our field as we do developing players. And, and I think to that extent, it's, it's gone very well. We've, we've really put a, a stress on the idea of developing winning baseball matters. And, you know, what, if you can judge that by winning games, we, we've done a, a fair bit of that in two years. I think we're fifth in baseball and in, in win percentage. We've been to nine postseasons in, in two years as a minor league organization and won three championships. And, and we've done it, as, as I think most would identify, without the, uh, the most robust prospect system in the game. Some of that self-inflicted and, and some of it's just something we're working through. But I, I'm really happy with what we've done developmentally and the progress that we continue to make. You know, a couple of years ago, Jerry, I think it was two years ago at this point, you were with us on probably a Sunday Magazine show, and you dropped the, the PTPA on us. Can you, uh, just for those who weren't familiar with it, can you explain that one more time? Yeah, the, the PTPA is it's something that we've been carrying for quite some time. This dates back to, you know, frankly, to give credit where it's due, the initial idea was Clint Hurdles, who now the manager oh. of the Pirates. And, you know, Clint, and Scott and I all worked together in, in uh, Colorado for a period of time. And then uh, Scott and Clint worked together while Clint was the hitting coach for the Texas Rangers and Scott was the farm director. And when, when obviously Scott and I have now spent the, the last six or seven years again together and, and we, we adopted the PTPA as a reference. It's, it's a, a productive team plate appearance. So effectively, it's measuring offensive contribution without it being all about the the result or the damage. You know, the, the ISO or the, the the slug or the on base things that we would track normally in an, in a public sphere. We've uh, we've adopted the PTPA as a way to teach our our young players how to play a more selfless game, how to focus on a team oriented result, and uh, essentially showing them that that based on a situation, there are a lot of different outcomes that we can count as a positive. And if you put your teammate in a good position to make a difference, that's positive. So, you know, we, we have a criteria and they include simple things like moving the runner over, not making an out, making a productive out, making a hard out. Uh, the, there's, there are a lot of different things that, that go into generating a PTPA. And two years ago, we set up a program where, where the organizational leader in PTPAs uh, generates an invitation to Major League Spring Training, regardless of the level you played at prior to uh, the that season. And we have a tournament that's almost set up like the you know March Madness. We'll start out with all of our our players, both pitchers and hitters. You know, for pitchers we have a, a different set of criteria, and we don't call it a PTPA, but. They're effectively strike zone control tournaments. We, we pit all of our players against one another in a fun competition. The, the coaches have, have the opportunity to, to pick players and pick their brackets. We do it here in the front office. And, and ultimately, there's a winner. And, and that winner generates a, an invitation to Major League Spring Training. And for the first time in most of their careers, they get to come to a big league camp and they generate a paycheck, which is not something that minor league players do, oddly. That's fantastic. Now, this is, uh, I mean, 
at the end of the season, or no, this isn't a season-long thing. You're saying that this is this is set up bracket style. Is that? I mean, am I understanding this right? This isn't over the course of the whole minor league season. No, you know, we track the PTPAs. We keep a display on the wall in minor league clubhouses so that the kids can see where they where they lie, or our players have the ability to to measure themselves against their team or even against themselves. And and uh, toward the tail end of the season, somewhere around late July, or, you know, first of August, we set up a a tournament that runs in weeks so we'll run a four or five week tournament where the players are pitted against one another each player generally plays themselves into a seed and you know the seeds start playing off against one another and whoever comes out on top gets an invitation to major league spring training and and as i've joked around just this week you know making the phone calls to to issue the invitations to major league camp to those who who don't have it in in their contracts, I I jokingly said to the two winners of the tournament, "This will be the first time you ever generated a paycheck in spring training." So congratulations. That's uh, and that's not a small thing. They'll get paid real money. They'll get to a big league camp. They'll get to play alongside Felix and Robbie and Nelson, which is not an insignificant thing. And hopefully they'll learn a thing or two about the the transition that's going to come after they graduate from the minor leagues. Now, is this is this clandestine as of right now as to who these players are? No, it, well, it is and it isn't. We're going to make a public announcement uh, later next week. But in the case of our PTPA winners, uh, Jordan Cowan, who played at the A levels for us last year, will will be the position player. Unfortunately, he's injured and isn't going to be able to take part. But he won the tournament and deserves to come, so he will be a part of our major league camp. And L.J. Newsom, also uh, an A-level player who uh, won the pitcher's version of the tournament, will be in big league camp. And, and I think both of them were just uh, over-the-top excited because it's, it's one thing to know that the carrot's out there for you. It's another thing to realize that you're actually going to go do it. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. Oh, it's fantastic. Now, am I remembering correctly, Jerry, that after – and forgive me if my timeline's off – after that was implemented in the minors, it was then the following year implemented – at Safeco Field inside the Mariners Clubhouse, or are those simultaneous or not done it together at all? Uh, we've always tracked it for our major league players, but we don't broadcast it in the same way. So, you I know, see. last spring it was first brought to the attention of our major league players that we actually do this, and you know, it's a it, but it's a different element. Once once you get to the major league level, we're not trying to start from scratch. We're not teaching them, you know, effectively how to make a sauce. We're trying to, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to to work on the plating, so to speak, for, you know, using culinary terms, and. Uh, in at the minor league levels, we're teaching them the basics. And that's why for us, the PTPA, the stress on team play, the understanding how to move a lineup is important. And, you know, at the major league level, they're a little bit more of a finished or polished product. And now we're just working on small detail. And, and that's the difference between coaching at the two levels. I'll give you a quick one, Aaron. So in 2016, we implemented this PTA program immediately after arriving in Seattle. We did the, the bracket tournament in August of 2016, and the winner of the August 2016 tournament was being discussed in a, an off-season trade, which ultimately came to pass that did include uh, Taylor Motter and his hair, <laughs> and and the, the winner of our tournament in 2016 was a, a first baseman who had played that year in Clinton by the name of Dalton Kelly. 
and ultimately Dalton was traded to the Tampa Rays in an offseason deal. And before we would agree to include Dalton in the trade and push it across the goal line, we had a discussion with the Rays, explain the program to them, and, and that we were, we were resistant to the idea of not following through on our promise. And as a result, the Rays brought Dalton Kelly to Major League Camp. They thought it was a, a, a neat idea, and I believe they've now started to incorporate or implement a similar type of rewards program for their kids. Now, now this helps explain how you and the Rays are such best buds, Jerry. I mean, you guys. I mean, that's that's incredible that they would do this. That they would not only. I mean, adopting the program is one thing, but they could easily have adopted it and not brought Dalton to camp. But that's fantastic. Yeah, I think it was the it was the right thing to do. And the the the, the Rays guys, Eric Neander, Matt Silverman, they're, they're just really good people, and they agreed that this was one of those circumstances where we broadcast this, we made we made it an in-house program that the kids were excited about, and Dalton went out and won the tournament, and and he deserved the the reward, and he got it. Well, since you brought up food a moment ago and we were talking about Arizona, uh, I am curious, since we both spend a decent amount of time in Arizona, you more than me, uh, no doubt about that. Oh, one of our mutual friends, Jack Mossaman, who I know works for you in a couple of different capacities, including uh, overseeing all the Mariners team travel. He has told me about a restaurant in the Peoria area that looks terrible and might have been on Triple D. Cheeto Banditos. Does this ring a bell to you? I have not been to Cheeto Banditos, nor has Jack mentioned it to me. So I'm going to have wow. to. Wow. All right. You haven't been talking to Jack enough, which I can't imagine is the truth. The, definitely um, not the truth, but he's not sharing this information. <laughs> uh, well, do, do you have a, a favorite guilty pleasure restaurant in the Peoria area? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, will be coming to spring training and, and would love to have a restaurant recommendation. Uh, guilty pleasure would be there's a and it's a little bit of a drive from Peoria, but in Scottsdale down by the the Biltmore shopping area, there is a gelato spot by the name of Frost, which is outrageous. It's as good a gelato as you're ever going to have. And as far as uh, the Triple D stops, and because the, the, there are a ton of them in in Arizona in general in the valley. But uh, there's a spot in Scottsdale, not too far from Talking Stick, by the name of Andrioli Italian Grocer. And it's both a, an Italian grocery store and effectively a, an Italian restaurant. You're, you're not going to walk into what appears to be a five-star layout, but the food is terrific. Everything is, is handmade and made to order. Anything from authentic Italian sandwiches to pasta dishes, it's, it's a great spot. Oh, very nice. I wrote both of those down. You know, I uh, we only have one real go-to ice cream place in Arizona, and that's a place uh, called Churn. And it's near, it's really close to one of the Bianco uh, locations, and they do a, a toasted coconut ice cream, which um, oh, got it I, I, I always say I'm going to get one scoop. Uh, and then I get two scoops, and then I can't drive home. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really good. <laughs> Intoxication really good. by coconut ice cream. It's a lot of ice cream, man, but it is really good. Uh, churn, it's a good spot. I, I would recommend it to anybody uh, looking for a who has got a sweet tooth coming out to spring training. Um, you know, Jerry, so a press release came out today from the Mariners uh, baseball information side of things. And, you know, you look at this press release and you go, man, this sounds like a lot of work for Jerry and his guys. Uh, you have... Uh, come to terms with uh, five arbitration eligible players. And these are all guys that are, I mean, these are major pieces, right? James Paxton, uh, David Phelps, Rosmo Ramirez, Nick Vincent, Mike Zanino. Uh, 
is this something that you kind of assume will get done, but just needs to, you need to devote the time? I mean, how much of a relief is it when you can kind of check the boxes on all these guys and getting them all uh, signed and ready to go and you can really uh, turn the page and move on to the next step? Oh, it, it is a huge relief. And and as you mentioned, from Nick Vincent to Paxton to Zanino, the huge David Phelps, Erasmo, a, a really important group for us to to check off. And, you know, this was the last stage of, of effectively making sure that all our in-house players were taken care of, at least those who were arbitration eligible or beyond. And it, I would, I'd be lying to you if I told you it, it took a great chunk of my time away. A lot of the heavy lifting in this process is done by our director of baseball ops, Justin Hollander, by our assistant general manager, Jeff Kingston, by our scouting coordinator, Tim Stanton, and many others, Emmanuel Cifuentes, Andrew Herrera, uh, Joel Furman. They, they all contribute in so many ways to this process and you know it's a it I won't go through and bore you with with how arbitration works but there's no slam dunk that it's going to get done without having to go to a room and you know we were able to negotiate what we thought were reasonable settlements with each of the players coming to agreement on a salary that I think they're all pleased with and and that allows us to go into spring training with you know happy healthy players who are ready to go contribute. Well, you joined the list of uh, about 29 other teams that all sent out uh, similar pre- press releases today. Everybody's uh, getting that knocked off the list. And uh, along the lines of of other general managers, Jerry, as I'm I'm sure you're aware, there was a uh, a, a really interesting article that uh, came out early in the month in the uh, New York Times. And uh, Jerry, you man, you were the lead story in this thing, which uh, wasn't the first time that you've been in the Times, uh, but this was probably under the most uh, humorous uh, circumstances. The whole article was on how general managers communicate with one another, and they told the story uh, that I was unaware of until I read it, that the D. Gordon deal with the Marlins, Jerry, you completed via text message over uh, airplane Wi-Fi. This is, this is true? This is true. Uh, we, were, we were actually en route back from Los Angeles where we were visiting with Shohei Otani, and Michael Hill and I, who had spoken you know, numerous times via telephone prior to consummating the deal over text on a Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, it was. We were we were at twenty five, thirty thousand feet up when, <laughs> when D. Gordon joined the Mariners. Now, have you ever made a deal strictly through text? Right, no phone call, no nothing. One GM texts another, and a few texts later, everything's ready to go. Yes, uh, there, really. There, yes, uh, two two such trades. And I think the over time, the, it, it, it's and I, I said this laughingly because Michael Hill, once I landed in Seattle and called him and and we worked through the the final detail and we had to to set up you know press releases and and the like, you know Mike's and Mike and I worked together with the the Rockies back in the early two thousands. I've known him for a lot of years, and uh, Mike said to me, JD, is that the first deal you've done? Oh, just finished over text and I said oh Mike come on when you, <laughs> when you make as many trades as we've made you, you tend to do them in weird places or spaces but uh no in, in this one we were we were able to push it across with D uh in the air I think one of my favorites was was back in the summer of 2016 we had we were in the midst of what was then we thought a really unfortunate run of injuries to pitchers 
and we were scrambling. We didn't have anybody at AAA who was ready to go. The AA staff really didn't have anybody that could could step up and go to the big leagues. So we were we were left looking for someone to step in immediately and start a major league game. And that led me to send a quick text message to Ross Atkins with the Blue Jays, and uh, and I asked Ross if he would consider you know moving Wade LeBlanc, who was then. Pl- pitching for the AAA Syracuse team in the Blue Jays chain, uh, or Buffalo, I think it was Syracuse. And uh, and Ross sent me back a quick message. Yeah, you know, we'd be willing to do that. You know, what, what would the considerations be? We worked out the considerations over a text message, and, and Wade LeBlanc became a Mariner and gave us 50 really solid innings in the middle of a summer that really get lost in translation in a, in a season that was starting to get a little turbulent. And, and Wade came in and settled things down, which was great for us. Have I told you my informal idea, but now it's formal since it's on the podcast, of the Wade LeBlanc Award? Have we discussed this? No, but last year's Wade LeBlanc, LeBlanc winner would have been Albers. Who, who was Absolutely. Yeah, he was like the new Wade LeBlanc. Yeah, I feel like every year there should be a physical trophy handed out uh, to the most unexpected starting pitcher out of nowhere to save the season for the Mariners. And it, it all began with with Wade LeBlanc. So uh, that was, it's the inspiration for some a great filler conversation on Mariners radio broadcast. So we thank you for that, Jerry. Uh, and, uh, and they don't do it. One more quick note. They don't do it great, uh, I, I guess, far different from one another. You know, Albers and LeBlanc are not too dissimilar. But in the case of Wade LeBlanc, one of the, the parts of the agreement that we made with the Blue Jays was that in the event that Wade came over, was able to stabilize, and we did get to the, to the point where the other pitchers were healthy and came off, that if Wade was going to run back through waivers, we would first offer him back to the Blue Jays, which set up the potential of trading Wade LeBlanc for Wade LeBlanc. <laughs> <laughs> which would have been awesome that but we weren't able to quite get there but it would have been awesome now do you, does something come to mind when i ask you the strangest place that you have uh, made a trade official uh the the strangest place nothing really comes to mind you know heavens knows I, whether it's it's negotiating contracts talking with other teams uh so many different conversations. The headset in it could be it could be pool beachside when you're on vacation. It could be in your office. It could be in generally any room of my house, and I and I do mean any. There are there are any number of different places you'll find yourself in talking on a treadmill. It, it's a you know communication is a funny thing when the other team is engaged and you feel like they're you're closing in on something. You're really not inclined to care about where you're sitting when you need to get a deal done well we look forward to when you break a deal on the wheelhouse we will uh although i must i gotta uh, say behind the scenes story I and mean, jerry you're you're almost too respectful the podcast you always put your cell phone uh far away from you when we when we record these which um i i, I mean it's very nice of you but i I don't ever want you to miss something. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's, and we're, we're actually crawling up on, on maybe the one-year anniversary, and I, I wish I could remember the, the exact player that this happened with. But last year during media week, just prior to, to uh, spring training, I, w- I was sitting on the dais 
be effectively being questioned by the media as to what we had done in the off season. And Ryan Divish had asked me the question, you know, does that do it for your for your roster moves? And I, and I said, ah, I don't know if it, it quite does it yet, or something along those lines. And and by the time we got off the dais, we had just executed a, another edition, I think, via waiver <laughs> claim. And and he said, you've got to be kidding me. I, I said, no, it, you know, the deal that was already done. We just hadn't announced it prior to walking off the stage. Well, you know, lastly, on that New York Times article, Jerry, I I know you know Brian Cashman very well, uh, your counterpart for the Yankees. I was I almost still can't believe it when uh, another general manager said that Brian Cashman had the most expansive collection of gifts. I mean, come on, Cashman. That's the last guy that I would guess would have a uh, a gift library that he'd be texting to all you guys. But can you confirm this? Uh, I, t- I can confirm that there are many out there that will go fairly deep on the gifts. And, and I, I am self-admittedly one of those. And, so, and it, it, it depends on who you're dealing with. I've got anything from the – I've got the gifts. I've got the emojis. I have developed a bit emoji that is uh, – that is, I'll say on the sometimes on the comical side, but there, there's a there's a certain sector out there that that are more likely to just go straight, play it straight with just text, and then there are others where I'll get a little creative, and there are some where I'll get creative and maybe a uh, you know a sophomoric type way, let's say. <laughs> See, I'm a big I'm a big Office fan, and so like my gift library is all Office gifts, and so like I'm like picturing the for those fans of the Office like the Stanley Hudson slow nod to you accepting a trade. I mean, is this, is this what we're talking about? I mean, would you actually incorporate it along those lines? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, and that particular gif of which you speak is in my bag of tricks. Uh, <laughs> as is, I've, I've got a variety of them stemming from, you know, it could, be, it could be from The Office. It's Chris Farley. There's a number of Jim Carrey's in my standard bag. Uh, there are there are some that that depending on how things go, I think I have a, a gif of uh, Stephen Ray in the crying game uh, in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> so there there are there are a number that you, you send out and you just try to pick the most appropriate one. I've I've come up with you know anything that that you see on the standard emoji board from the happy face to the you know the steaming pile of poo, <laughs> and any one of them are in play. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll get to some uh, some fan questions here, Jerry. And uh, a reminder, as always, that uh, listeners, you can email us very simply at thewheelhouse at mariners.com. Uh, Colin is the landlord of this email account. So if your question does not get chosen, you can uh, tweet Colin. Uh, but Brian Kessler from uh, Lake Stevens, a fine teacher at Marysville Pilchuck High School. And uh, research indicates that they are the Tomahawks. So go Tomahawks. Uh, Brian has this question for you, Jerry. Uh, that you are obviously well known as a numbers guy, very stat cast oriented, saber oriented. Uh, but uh, what kind of stock or weight do you put on the idea of intangibles, Jerry, as a factor of success for uh, an individual player or the team uh, as a whole? Huge. And uh, I would say that while I am very statistically bent uh, and, we, and we do tend to rely on uh, analytics to to assist in our decision-making process, we try to be as balanced as we can, you know, looking at both the analysis and the, the scouting feedback on a player. I did spend about a decade in scouting, so I'd, I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't 
count on that heavily. But in terms of intangibles, I think intangibles, I don't want to say they supersede what goes on, but many of the trades that you will see us make are largely built on what we think the player's character make up the intangibles are about. So you may see us send a player out the door that you're a little surprised that we moved, and you may see us bring in a player and invest more than than you would logically think we should in a player, and that is almost always has to do with the, the intangibles or the makeup of the player. It's it's an important element to us. We're not scientists, but we're constantly trying to figure out how the twenty five players fit together in a major league clubhouse. And you have to remember when you're team building, we can plug in 20 homers, we can build in a 350 on base, we can plug in a 350 FIP. But at the end of the day, these guys are locked in a clubhouse together for about 200 days. And we have to find the right mix of personalities of people of work habits, and of desire. And, you know, for me, when you find those players who take that kind of complete ownership of what they do, and, and and have that self self drive that they pass on to other players and they have the ability to calmly pull their teammates aside and talk to them maturely they're worth their weight in gold you, you can't you can't replicate those pieces and and those guys tend to stay around for a long time and I'll, frankly one of those guys those intangible type players we just picked up this offseason in a utility role is Andrew Romine who's got a he's got a great feel for how the game works grew up in the game, understands his role, and, and his intangibles really allow him to contribute, despite the fact that on paper it's it's not going to look like an overwhelming result. Yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll share this with you, too, uh, to go for, full circle back to Taylor Motter. When Taylor was asked uh, on the caravan, uh, just kind of a, an outlook of the team and going forward, and a pretty g- generic uh, overarching question, uh, you know, Taylor right away piped up by just – almost gushing about the camaraderie on the team uh, and how that struck him even in spring training last year and it carried through the entire season. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with some off-the-field intangibles, uh, kind of what you're talking about. But I'd have to think a man in your position, Jerry, as you are, I mean, I think a lot of people probably think it's this is just a higher stakes game of fantasy baseball. Uh, but I mean, these are like re- these are real people with real personality, uh, real baggage, whether that's good or bad. And so for you to put together 25 guys, or as we know, over the course of a full season, far more than just 25 guys, to have them all gel for that period of time, that's no easy feat. It really isn't. And sometimes it's it's almost like mad science where you try something, you realize that a, a guy who fit in another clubhouse environment doesn't quite fit in yours and the like. And I, I know I learned great lessons about that during my time with the Red Sox, and it's probably not as as – prevalent outside of Boston and in New York, but those teams are so dialed into how a player is going to react in their market because the market is so unique. And and uh, you learn lessons about team building, about about putting the right pieces together. And, and frankly, having had the chance to play for a dozen years and, and watching the way clubhouses work, you, know, it's, it's, you don't mind having guys that are edgy, but it's very difficult to have guys that, that are combative with one another. Mm-hmm. That creates problem. I'm, I'm curious for you to expand on that briefly because it, I almost forgot that you were with the Red Sox for, in the grand scheme of things, a very brief period of time before coming to Seattle. But obviously in that brief stint with uh, Dave Dombrowski and with the Red Sox, you learned a pretty vital lesson or at least honed it a little bit more. 
No, I was actually with the Red Sox as a scout in 2000, late 02 through the World oh, okay. Series in 04. So uh, I was uh, I was actually there for the the I was there for the beginning of the Theo Epstein journey to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, it's a, <laughs> we were uh, it's I I was working in the pro scouting department at the time, and and you know it it was then so many strong personalities Johnny Damon Derek Lowe Jason Veritek Kurt Schilling there, there, it was it was such a unique group of players that we were dealing with and I know just like the Yankees the Red Sox were super cognizant of the 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 understanding how each of those players would adapt to the markets and you know thankfully for us that group really gelled together with a lot of unique personalities David Ortiz Manny Ramirez uh, Nomar and and the Yankees for decades have been wired the same way and and now so many teams spend a lot of time trying to identify those emotional psychological even personality traits with the players they're acquiring because once you put them in a room together you have to know that the the that effectively all of the different elements that you're trying to put in the sauce will make a, a, a sauce that tastes good otherwise you just have a mess that's interesting and a, and a good history lesson, too. Uh, our, our final question today comes from uh, Richard Moore, who uh, wants to talk about the thing that controls the game these days. That is the bullpen and kind of twofold here, J- Jerry. How much do you how much say do you have in bullpen usage or is that something that uh, is 100 percent Scots? And to what extent is there a plan to leverage pitchers? in different situations instead of just locking them down to, hey, you're the seventh inning guy, you're the eighth inning guy, you're the closer, that type of thing? Uh, quite Actually, we interact on this as much, uh, and when I say we, myself, Scott, Mel Stottlemyre, our front office, our analytical department, we will our, our advanced scouting group, we will, we will coordinate on this element maybe more than anything we do. And, you know, once the game starts, now it's Scott's call. And, and we talk about the different personnel, how they best line up. Uh, we do maybe of, of the things you just mentioned, the one thing that we do really subscribe to is the leverage index. Try to make sure going into each game that we have a true feeling for when the, the let's call it the temperature is rising in the in the game it's not always the eighth inning when you're up by three sometimes it's in the sixth inning of a tie game depending on the circumstance where where you're going to see the highest leverage in that game and as a result what scott does and and has done and and i'll even stop for a moment and and throw another blurb in here we we've actually hired two more pitching coaches uh, for our major league staff, Jim Brower and Brian DeLunis. And Brower, in particular, will be in the dugout and play a very heavy role in this in terms of in-game pitching change and who is the best option in that moment. But back to how we do it, Scott will determine which pockets in the opponent's lineup best suit our pitchers, be it Nick Vincent or Mark Zepchinski or David Phelps. And, you know, the one guy who generally has, has an, an inning that, that he locks down is Edwin Diaz. But as you'll see or have seen, we're not opposed to bringing Eddie in in the eighth inning if we have to, it, it, if the leverage calls for it. 
but we'll use pockets to determine when you're going to use Zepchinsky, when you're going to use Vincent, and how to piece them together. And when all the weapons are healthy, when Nicasio and Phelps and Vincent and Zepchinsky and Pazos and Diaz, etc., are all healthy, now you have the ability to play the chess match. Unfortunately, once you get into the middle of summer, sometimes all those pieces aren't ready to go, and you have to ad lib as best you can. But we use leverage index and everything we do to try to determine matchups at the right time in the game and then pick the appropriate leverage. So each pitcher will be designated as as regard to this is his pocket and high leverage. This is his pocket and medium leverage. And this is our guy who, if we have to go too early in the game for his first out so that each player knows what the expectation is that day. And it may result in a guy popping around and pitching in variety of different innings. As you probably saw most notably, you know, last summer during that, that brief period when we had both Nick Vincent and David Phelps performing at the top of their games, sometimes Phelps would throw the eighth inning and sometimes Vincent would throw the, the sixth inning or vice versa with the seventh and the eighth uh, because the, the pocket better suited the matchup with that pitcher. Now, uh, this is this is fascinating. When you talk about leverage index, I mean, is this is this another word for kind of Scott's gut and what's going on in the game, or is there? I, I mean, I'm env- envisioning like an iPad with a uh, uh, with almost like a uh, a stock market tick as the game goes up and it goes down and it gets deeper into the game. I mean, or is it somewhere in between those two things? It's the it's the latter of those two things. It's a uh, you know, and you can actually pu- pull it up in the in the public forum on a variety of different sites uh, you can one that I know for certain you can go to fan graphs and and pull up a, a leverage index and and print it out and it, it looks quite normal and it's very accurate so we'll use a very similar index you know call it a, a matrix we used it in Arizona when I was there as well and and around the league you know there's I would say better than three and four teams reference the the leverage index and how they make their moves and, you know, it's funny you mentioned Scott's gut or really anybody's gut. I worked with a good baseball man for a long time. And, and the one thing that he used to say and I subscribe to is there, there's there's really no such thing as gut. The guy with a good gut feel is the guy who's got more information than the other guy. <laughs> it's ah. just a matter of how you qualify and how you sort through your information. Some people need to look at a seat, sheet. Some people just know how. So the leverage index for the uh, come-from-behind win in San Diego a number of years ago uh, around the sixth inning or so probably probably didn't look so good. Or would that be more a uh, win probability, I suppose, at that point? Yeah, and we also have a win probability sheet provided by your friend and mine, Jack Mossiman. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, in, in regard to that game in San Diego, I think the, the starting pitcher that night for us was Wade Miley. He may have said it best when, when he said, <laughs> you know, he, he spotted them 10 runs. To, and, uh, you know, if he had only known that all he had to do was pitch five and hang on for a win. But, you know, I, I think the the idea for us was uh, was the – in using our bullpen, we wanted to make sure that going into each game, we had a plan from manager through through staff. We had a plan for how each pitcher was going to be used. And then obviously, like in most situations, if chaos occurs and, and you're forced into doing unusual things, you just do the best you can to, to put the pieces together. And, you know, that night in San Diego was bizarre. No one would have expected that. Frankly, it was back-to-back bizarre nights with Paxton and Miley uh, throwing those two games in San Diego. But 
they are not really representative of how we would best view a, a leverage index sheet, but more win probability. And frankly, if we were listening to the win probability sheet and told our players that that the win probability was something less than zero, <laughs> we, we would have we wouldn't have come back and won. So some that we're, we're back to question one from from Brian. You know, the uh, the the intangibles or the qualities of the character sometimes supersede what you can do in in analysis. Yeah, those are good questions, both Brian and Richard. Uh, well, hey, Jerry, man, this has been a lot of fun, uh, as always, uh, our eighth episode in the books. And remember, uh, single-game tickets are on sale now. Just simply go to Mariners.com uh, or any Mariners team store. And we certainly cannot wait to see you, Safeco Field, opening day against the Tribe on March 29th. Uh, well, Jerry, uh, happy weekend to you, man. I hope uh, the rain lets up a little bit in Seattle if it's still coming down. And I uh, look forward to doing this again next week. As do I. Please find some way to enjoy yourself in New York as I hop on a plane tomorrow to uh, balmy Clinton, Iowa for a hot stove Ooh. league dinner. Yeah. I'll uh, be thinking of you, though, brother. I will be thinking <laughs> of you. Quickly, uh, can you? I, I have not been to Clinton, uh, but I have heard many people give me scouting reports on the smell in certain places of Clinton. Can you uh, briefly elaborate? Yeah, you know, Clinton's, it's actually, a, it's a, an awesome little town, like so many Iowa small Iowa towns are. It, it it is it has the distinction of being the home to a dog food factory. So therefore, there is there, there is a, a certain scent that you're going to get <laughs> uh, as soon as you you enter the town. But you know it's it's been it's been a great affiliate for us and and Clinton dating back to the early 2000s, going in and out of there as a scout. You know any one of those Quad City zones, whether it's there, Quad City, it's a, it's a Burlington, Iowa. There, there there are a number of little Iowa cities that are just great for for wholesome kind of grassroots baseball, and Clinton's one of them. Well, we'll speak. Speaking of win probability, uh, the Clinton Lumber Kings had like the greatest comeback of all time uh, not all that long ago when they came back after trailing by uh, 16 runs. I know uh, Kyle's brother was a part of that, uh, among other guys, obviously, as well. But uh, so it goes to show you, yeah, they were down, I just looked it up quickly, 20 to 17. They were down 17 to 1 after five innings, and they were able to come back and, uh, and win that one. So you never know what's going to happen. Uh, that one was played in uh, Burlington, Iowa. So uh, good stuff there by the Lumber Kings. <laughs> That's just how we drew it up, Aaron. Just how we drew it up. <laughs> well, Jerry, safe travels to you, man. We'll be talking to you next week. Okay, you too.